Welcome back to Over My Dead Pod. I'm Kylie Colwell. And I'm Holly Spear. And this is Kate Carter, and I'm back, bitches. Ah. <laughs> Hello, I've missed you guys. We missed you. Thanks. I, uh, you know, had a child, but doing good, doing good. You guys definitely held down the, the throne. Everything sounded really good. I actually listened to the episodes for once. Yeah, well, just because Kylie kind of gave me a heads up that one of the episodes you guys like shit talked me. And so I was curious. Um, yeah. So then I went and listened to most of them. But I didn't know we got you to listen. We yeah. we should talk to you so that you'd have to hear what we said. So you'd listen. You threatened me a little bit and I showed up. Yeah, it always works. But I'm happy to be back. I'm happy for you to be back because today I have to tell you guys a story about a man the FBI has said is the most terrifying person they have ever investigated or interviewed. I'm so ready. This is a good one. I'm excited. The FBI has released 13 hours of interviews with the transcripts. I went through all of it. Of course you did. Don't have much going on in my life. But for those who want the shorter version, this is the story of serial killer Israel Keys. So most of what we know about Israel Keys comes from these interviews with the FBI, but there's still a lot we don't know about him, including the number of victims he is responsible for. So I'm going to go through all of the potential victims of Israel in chronological order, and I want you all to let me know if you think he may be responsible or not. Before we get into that, let's dive into Israel's early life because it is quite interesting. Israel was born on January 7, 1978, in Richmond, Utah, into a large religious family. Israel was the second of ten children, all raised in the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, more commonly known as Mormonism. As soon as you were like, to a religious family, I'm like, red flags. So his parents raised their children in a pretty, pretty secluded lifestyle. All ten of the children were born at home and had never received medical care. They also ah. never got birth certificates or social security numbers. What do you think about that, Kate? You think you could do an at-home birth? Absolutely not. Oh, my God. <laughs> when I was in the hospital giving birth, I had the epidural, you guys. And Cameron and I heard screaming. And we literally looked at each other and we're like, oh, my God, what's happening? And the nurse, like, runs in, shuts my door. And she's like, sorry about that. And I looked at her. I was like, please tell me that's a natural birth. And she goes, oh, yeah, she wanted no drugs. The oh. woman screaming so take me off the list for home birth not it so the kids were also not allowed to play with kids whose families weren't in the church and didn't share the same beliefs when israel was five his parents decided to go more off the grid and move the family to a 100 acre property in colville washington the entire 12 person family moved into a one bedroom cabin that didn't have electricity or running water so when the kids weren't being forced to memorize and recite scripture, they were made to hunt for their own food in the woods. Oh my gosh. All right. This dude's a serial killer, you said? Like, this is kind of panning up. Like, you get what I'm saying? It makes sense, yeah. no. Yeah, it's tracking. It's tracking. At one point for several years, the kids were forced to live in tents outside of the cabin on their own. The family also began attending a church called The Ark, a Christian church with strong white supremacist teachings. While at the Ark, Israel befriended another boy named Chevy Kehoe. I have to take a quick little side quest to talk about Chevy because he was later convicted for the kidnapping, torture, and murder of a family. 
On January 11, 1996, Chevy and another friend named Daniel Lewis Lee traveled to Arkansas to rob a known gun dealer, William Frederick Mueller. Chevy had actually robbed William once before with his dad. For the second mission, Chevy and Daniel dressed up as FBI agents and broke into the Mueller home. When William, his wife Nancy, and their eight-year-old daughter Sarah returned home, they were immediately shot with stun guns. After they were subdued, Chevy tied plastic bags over their heads and suffocated them to death. Chevy then proceeded to dump their bodies in Lake Dardanelle in Russellville, Arkansas, which is Holly's hometown. Whoa, I didn't know that. That's crazy. You played in that river growing up? Didn't you just do like a... You were just swimming in there, right? Oh, wait, didn't you just do certification or something? No, you... Uh, That was in a lake by Hot Springs, but I mean, no, I have swam in the Dardanelle River many of times. Mm. With these people, I guess. That's unfortunate. Meanwhile, back at the Keys household, Israel started to realize he was different from the other kids in the church, or at least most of them, not Chevy. Israel started shooting at neighbors' houses with his BB gun, starting fires in the woods, creeping on people, and breaking into houses for fun. On a few occasions, he would steal guns and sell them. Israel also started torturing animals. Mm. Another red flag. That's the starter red flag. The reddest of red flags. Oh, it bothers me so much, the animals. I can't. We can talk about human murders, but not cats. I'm, that's where I draw the line. Yeah, or dogs, or any animal, really. On one occasion, a young boy who was a family friend witnessed Israel killing the family cat, and the young boy began crying and threw up. It was at this moment that Israel realized he was different from other kids. Because yep. he was kind of like confused, like, why is this boy freaking out? He's like, oh, maybe I'm the problem. That was that was the moment he decided he was different. Yes. It's you. You're the problem. It's you. It's you. It's not me. So he didn't know how to feel about this. He wanted to lean into it. He had this urge, but he also wanted to fit in and be normal. So he just kind of slowly withdrew himself from everybody. This, of course, is Israel's own words, because around this time, there was an unsolved murder that many believe Israel committed. On March 2nd, 1996, 12-year-old Julie Marie Harris disappeared after waiting for a ride to church in Colville, Washington, where Israel lived. Julie was actually a double-foot amputee and was a Special Olympics medalist in skiing. Over a month went by with no sight of Julie until her prosthetic feet were found in the Colville River in April. Who takes a little double amputee girl? I I know it kind of makes sense for like a teenage soon-to-be serial killer to start off with like a disabled young child you know what i mean unfortunately Mm -hmm. so julie's body was found almost exactly a year later a few miles away at the time julie's mother's boyfriend was actually named as a person of interest he allegedly was unaccounted for during this time and admitted to getting on to julie about her grades the boyfriend was also facing charges for the assault of her younger brother there have been no arrests in this case. Police have also not released a cause of death. They have only stated that Julie was not buried. So a lot of people believe that the police were leaning towards like an accidental death in Julie's case. Maybe she was just out playing in the woods, got lost, you know, with her disability, succumbed to the elements, whatever. But much later, when Israel was later arrested for another murder, the FBI asked him about Julie. 
All he said was that he could neither confirm nor deny. There was also another case around this time that Israel was questioned about. On June 27, 1997, 12-year-old Cassandra Emerson was reported missing after her mother, 29-year-old Marlene, was found in their burnt-down trailer. You might have guessed this, but this was also in Colville, Washington. Cassandra's body was found a year later, and it was either, depending on the source, 13 or 3 miles away. I don't know what the discrepancy is there. In interviews with police, Israel didn't confess to anything or give any hints. All he said was that his first active arson was a trailer in Colville. And I couldn't find any other instances of arson going on. I don't know if it was a big issue. It was a pretty small town with just like 4,000 people. Soon after this arson attack, the Keys family moved to Maupin, Oregon to join another church, the Christian Israel Covenant Church. And if you are wondering if this church was also racist, they were. The main covenant of this new church was, quote, that Anglo-Saxons were to rule over inferior races, end quote. So I'm not sure if Israel shared these beliefs, but after moving to Oregon, Israel did announce to his parents that he was an atheist while in the heat of an argument. His parents proceeded to kick Israel out of the family and forbade all of his nine siblings from speaking to him ever again. Soon after this, the Keys family packed up and moved to Smyrna, Maine to work on a sap farm for an Amish community. Anyways, now 19-year-old Israel is now on his own in Oregon in the summer of 1997. And this is when Israel committed his first known and confirmed attack. According to Israel, he began rebelling against his parents and his childhood by leaning heavy into Satanism. He even got a pentagram tattoo. He also leaned heavy into his urges and desires and began studying serial killers and criminal investigations. He loaned books from the library about serial killers, writing down what they did right and what they did wrong. He would double-check things with criminal investigation books in order to hone down the perfect plan. And fun fact, his favorite serial killer was Ted Bundy, which is who he probably got this idea from. On one summer day, Israel waited around the Deschutes River and watched people float down. He ended up waiting for hours until the perfect victim came upon him. There was a group of teenage girls floating along when one of them got left behind. Israel grabbed her from the water and drug her to an abandoned outhouse just out of sight. Israel proceeded to tie her up and assault her. In interviews, Israel confessed this unnerved him. This was because the girl actually began to compliment him telling him like how handsome he was like if he wanted to go on a date he just had to ask all this stuff because she realized like he wanted her to put up a fight so wow. this completely threw him off and he ended up letting her go that's how you do it smart mm -hmm. girl he told her that if she said anything to anyone he would kill her and you know she never said anything because no one knows who this is until this day all israel could provide is that she was anywhere from the age of 14 to 18. He also says that he regrets not killing her, and it really struck his ego by letting her go. Wait, she wow. never came out and said anything? Nope, even after his arrest. That's crazy. I was about to say, like, how many people do you think actually don't say anything? Because I've never heard of them, but obviously I guess you wouldn't hear of them unless... The killer confesses, yeah. killer confesses, but that's crazy. This did unnerve him quite a bit, because... To kind of run away, he decided to move to Albany, New York. 
is where another potential victim lived. On March 2nd, 1998, 19-year-old Susie Lyle disappeared. Susie was last seen getting off the bus at Collins Circle after her shift at the mall and heading towards her dorm on the SUNY Albany campus. She was reported missing the next morning after failing to get back to her dorm. Her credit card was used at a local convenience store ATM and $20 was withdrawn. Susie's boyfriend told police that the only people who knew the PIN number for the card was Susie and himself. Also, this was before ATMs had security cameras, so we don't know who used the card. The boyfriend had an alibi, which I will say is not strong. He said he was playing video games with a friend, but the friend did confirm this. Oh, boys. Initially, he was cooperative with police and said Susie was his fiancée. Susie's family has later said that they were not engaged, so this was odd. Even more odd, they reported that Susie tried breaking up with him on multiple occasions, but he would get emotional and convince her to stay. Okay, red flags. Red flags, people. Soon after his disappearance, the boyfriend refused to take a polygraph test. Well, I mean, I don't blame him, but don't don't do it, actually. He made the right decision. Yeah. So this boyfriend has has not been named as a person of interest or a suspect, but police have kind of entertained a connection to a similar case. 13 years prior, another SUNY student, Karen Louise Wilson, went missing after being seen at the exact same bus stop. That is weird. Like Susie, Karen has not been located and there are no official suspects. Police are kind of at a loss with both cases. What we do know is that on the night of Susie's disappearance, a man had called police to report a suspicious man waiting around in a parking lot, less than two miles away from where Susie was. The man was described as tall, with an athletic build, dark hair, and blue eyes, which matched Israel to a T. However, we aren't entirely sure when Israel got to New York. We do know that on July 9, 1998, a few months later, Israel enlisted in the army right there in Albany, which I don't know how he did without a birth certificate or social security number. Sometimes the military just needs them. Makes sense. Israel ended up being stationed at Fort Lewis in Tacoma, Washington, and found it hard to fit in with other soldiers due to his sheltered life. He didn't understand, like, their pop culture references and just generally was not a cool dude. So he began to abuse alcohol and drugs, confessing to spending over $100 a day on cocaine. Israel also started to hire prostitutes and realized he was bisexual. Growing up the way that he did, there's so many red flags. Like he was, he was going to turn up weird, you know, in one way or another, weird. Yeah, yeah. Like he did. There was no choice, unfortunately. So he carried on this lifestyle when he was moved to Fort Hood in Texas and later to Egypt. On one occasion that we know of, Israel hired a prostitute in Egypt and barricaded her into a hotel room and wouldn't let her leave. The woman did get away and, re- and reported that no assault had occurred, but that he was an odd man. Which, go figure. Israel ended up back at Fort Lewis in Washington for a bit until February of 2001 when he got a DUI. And this resulted in him being honorably discharged. Honorably? Honorably. Damn, he got lucky. Honorable. Also lucky right before 9-11. Right. 
And like, you, I don't know if you guys know this, but when you are honorably discharged, you can apply for VA benefits. If you are not honorably discharged, if you're just discharged, then you don't get VA benefits. Like, you know, you can't apply for disability and stuff like that. So he's had it made. Right. And a DUI this day, you don't get honorable at all. Oh. Yeah, I yeah. wouldn't think so. But also sometimes you don't get kicked out for a DUI. It just depends. I think they just figured he's a weird dude. He's not fitting in. Let's just, let's just get him out. So after this, Israel moved to Nia Bay, Washington. But this is where another body appeared. Sometime be- between July and October of 2001, the details are hard to find. Literally couldn't even find a name. A man went missing after going on a hike. His body was later found in the water and ruled accidental. Despite this, the FBI is investigating Israel's connection to this, not only due to his proximity, but due to his own words. In one of the interviews, an agent asked Israel if the murder started after his military discharge. He said, yeah, Nia Bay is a boring town. In another interview, he admitted to submerging a victim in a lake, but wouldn't expand on details. Another reason why he may be connected is because of his own girlfriend. After being discharged, Israel began dating a woman named Tammy and moved in with her. Tammy later told police that on the day the man disappeared, Israel was nowhere to be seen. What is odd is that Israel seemed to have, like, turned his life around during this time. So he had a girlfriend, they had a daughter, who we'll call Sarah, and Israel apparently was a really good dad and partner. Tammy said he was attentive and caring. He was working as a construction worker, and all of the neighbors loved him. The only complaint anyone had, including Tammy, was his drinking. At this point, Israel was drinking a bottle of whiskey and at least a six-pack of beers daily. When he would get really drunk, he would like break down and start crying to Tammy about how horrible of a person he was, but he wouldn't say much, and Tammy could never figure out what he meant. The little family lived quite peacefully up until 2007 when Israel turned 29. Around this time, Tammy got uterine cancer and ended up getting a hysterectomy. Following this, Tammy ended up being addicted to painkillers and Israel began an online relationship with a woman in Anchorage, Alaska named Kim. He decided to leave Tammy and take their daughter to move in with Kim soon after beginning this relationship. That's rough. In Anchorage, Israel started his own construction company called Keys Construction. Fun fact, Google Earth used to have a photo of him on their street view of him with his work truck loading tools into it. They've since updated it, so he's no longer on there. Unfortunately, I checked. I'm Google Earth. Anyways, Israel kept working and maintained being a good dad and a good boyfriend, but the urge to kill was eating away at him. So after some time off, he decided to get back to his studies. And this led for him to develop a plan in order to evade being caught. Rule number one was to never kill close to home. Rule number two was to never kill in the same location twice. Rule number three, don't have a victim type. The fourth rule was to never kill children or people with children. Since, you know, becoming a dad, he has morals now about children. Another thing that Israel took from his studies was the idea for murder kits. He began gathering up supplies to put into buckets, which he would spread all over the United States. Oh, I've heard about those. So he'd take, you know, those orange Home Depot buckets, 
and he would fill them with knives, guns, ammunition. He had like cleaning supplies, like little shovels, Drano and lye. Apparently, Drano removes DNA and fingerprints. But you didn't hear that from me. <laughs> so it's like little, uh, what do they call those little? Uh... The home kit. Yeah, but like, you know, when people used to go on hunts for little treasures, was that big when you guys were in high school? To, like, oh, was it geocaching? Geocaching. So it's like geocaching for serial killers. Yes. The whole time I couldn't figure out how he remembered where he buried them, though. Right. Like that there's no... He, if you put them all over the place, there's no way. I can't remember what I ate this morning. You know, like that's, no. he had it kind of written down somewhere. Yeah. He must have. But once his plan was put into place, Israel began taking trips all over, saying he was visiting family and friends or he was on a business trip, which I guess worked, even though he was a construction worker for his own company. I don't know what business trips he would be going on. Whereas he was just burying these murder kits to come back to later. His plans were pretty elaborate. Israel would fly into one state, rent a car, drive to another, fly again, rent another car, and on and on to throw people off. He would also take the battery out of his phone and paid for everything in cash. The FBI has tracked down a total of 36 trips between 2004 and 2012, hitting almost every state plus Canada and Mexico. Israel said in interviews that there are probably only 12 kits buried somewhere in total, though. They couldn't figure out how many have actually been found, other than just, like, the one picture I found. Around this time that he began to hide these murder kits, there were a string of murders and kidnappings that have been unofficially tied to Israel. But these crimes break his self-imposed rules, so I'm not entirely sure that these are his doing. On March 23, 2007, 52-year-old Randy Gorenberg was abducted from the Boca Town Center Mall parking lot in Boca Raton, Florida. Only an hour had passed before her body was found with two fatal bullet wounds. Only a few months would pass when in August, an unidentified woman claimed that her and her toddler son were abducted from the same parking lot. So this would break two of Israel's rules, never hitting this location twice and not harming children. This woman described the man as white with long, dark hair, despite wearing a mask and sunglasses. The woman also said he forced her to withdraw cash from an ATM before releasing her. A few more months later, in December of 2007, 47-year-old Nancy Bacciccio and her 7-year-old daughter, Joey, were found fatally shot in the same parking lot. People have linked Israel to these crimes, but I guess he could break his own rules, like he made the rules, but... I don't feel like he would. How did we get the rules? Did he say them? Yes, in the interviews. I feel like if you're crazy enough to say that in police interview, you know, like, yeah, stuck to them. These rules were so that he didn't, so he wouldn't get caught. Especially in Boca. Boca's so crowded. Like, I'm, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Also, we knew he has guns. You'll see later, he doesn't really tend to shoot his victims. And the ones that are definitely confirmed linked to him, the bodies haven't been found. So the MO's a little bit different. So whether Israel is responsible for these murders or not, the FBI believes he is responsible for the next one. And this time we're back up north. 
On April 8, 2009, 48-year-old Deborah Feldman was last seen at her apartment in Hackensack, New Jersey. Like a few other cases, I couldn't find out much. Some sources say she was last seen at her apartment. Others say there was a kidnapping that was witnessed at the apartment. But no matter what happened, Deborah's body has never been found. The FBI believes Israel is responsible not only because the MO matches his other cases, but also again his proximity. Only five days later after Deborah's disappearance, Israel robbed a bank in Tupper Lake, New York, five hours north. And shortly before Israel is captured, years later, his computer and phone data showed that he has searched Deborah's missing person case in news articles several times in only a few days. When showed her picture in one of the interviews, Israel said, quote, I don't want to talk about her yet, end quote. Some cases he'll go into like full detail, like play by play, everything that happened. And then other ones, he's just like, mm, I don't feel like it. But throughout all these interviews, the main concern for Israel is protecting his daughter and keeping his name out of the news. So he didn't want like fame or attention like other serial killers that like want to have as many bodies as possible. It's a little odd. Another instance of Israel toying with the FBI comes with the case of Madison Geraldine Scott, who went by Maddie. On May 28, 2011, Maddie went to a campsite party with some friends in Vanderhoof, British Columbia which is about 33 hours from Israel's home in Anchorage. That night, Maddie had gone to bed in her tent and had sent a few texts to her dad before falling asleep. Around midnight, Maddie's friend Jordy Bolduck woke Maddie up and asked her if she wanted to leave with her. Jordy had gotten into a fight with her boyfriend and said she needed to get out of there. Maddie declined and said she would see Jordy in the morning. Jordy showed back up to the campsite around 8.30 a.m. to retrieve her tent, sleeping bag, and clothes she had left behind. When she arrived, she noticed Maddie's tent was unzipped, but all of her belongings were left behind. The only things missing were Maddie's iPhone and the keys to her truck, but the truck was still there. For some reason, though, Jordy didn't report Maddie missing. No one knew Maddie was missing until the next day when another party showed up at the campsite and found that her tent was flattened. The next day, Maddie's family showed up to look for her and saw only her tent left behind. She was reported missing that day, and the search's lasting months began. So this was in 2011. Her body was not found until last year, in wow. May of 2023. Wow, that's so sad. So sad. So her body was located on a, all they said was a rural property just a few miles away from the campsite. So knowing that Israel had taken trips to Canada and Mexico, the FBI asked him about any potential crimes he committed outside of the U.S. When asked about Canada specifically, Israel said, quote, Canadians don't count. You're like, that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, Israel kept up his travels, bearing murder kits, and eventually using one of them a confirmed time. In June of 2011, Israel flew from Anchorage to Seattle, then to Chicago, where he rented a car. He had told his girlfriend he was going to visit his brothers in Maine for a bit. But in typical fashion, he didn't drive straight to Maine. He stopped in Bloomington, Indiana for a few days, starting on June 2nd. And if you're an avid listener, your red flags may be waving, because on this exact date in Bloomington, Lauren Spearer disappeared. What? I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. If you want the whole story, check out episode 26, Shameless Plug. 
I didn't know about this connection until I started researching this case. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So this is like nuts. We're having a crossover yeah. event. Yeah, okay, okay. Quick synopsis, Lawrence Spear was an Indiana University student who left a friend's apartment after a night out and had not been seen since. No clues, evidence, nothing. Let's say the FBI have not connected him, but this is more of like an internet sleuth theory. But I have to say, it kind of tracks. We know he was there. The MO matches. Body just disappeared. Yeah. No sight. No evidence. Nothing. This is crazy. Oh, that is crazy. We don't know exactly when Israel left Indiana, but he did eventually drive to a farmhouse he owned in upstate New York for a bit. Instead of going straight to Maine, he stopped in Burlington, Vermont, and checked into a hotel where he stayed until dark. Once the sun was down, Israel put on all-black clothing and walked to find one of the murder kits he had buried there two years prior. Side note, we know all these details because it's like one of the times Israel actually talked about them. Once he had his murder kit, he began to walk around town looking for the perfect house to hit. It took a bit, but he stumbled upon 8 Colbert Street in Essex. The house was quiet and there were no kids' playgrounds or tools in the backyard or in the pool. So this checked off one of his rules for not harming children or people who had children. So she, he sticks to the rules? So far, yeah. Yeah. Israel cut the phone line and broke in through the attached garage. Before entering through the kitchen, he rummaged around the car a little bit. He then quietly walked upstairs to the main bedroom where 49-year-old William Courier and his wife, 55-year-old Simone Courier, were sleeping. At gunpoint, he ordered the couple to roll over onto their stomach so he could zip-tie their wrists and ankles together. Israel then kept demanding to know where their safe was, if they had guns, jewelry, or prescription drugs. He then demanded for their debit and credit cards and wrote down their PIN numbers. While William and Simone were all tied up, he grabbed two of their suitcases and began filling them with their belongings, some expensive and some just clothes. At one point, he noticed Lorraine was wearing a t-shirt and shorts, so he forced her to change into lingerie. Once this was done, he forced the couple downstairs into their own car, with Lorraine in the passenger seat and Bill in the back. Israel then drove straight to an abandoned farmhouse off Route 15. And it turns out he had scoped it out earlier while on his little his little hot girl walk. He picked it out because there was a for sale sign in the yard and it looked like no one had lived there in a while. He pulled up to the house and drug William down to the basement where he tied him up to a stool. Israel then went back outside to get Lorraine, but she was now out of the car and running towards the road. Unfortunately, Israel was able to catch up to her quite easily and he drug her into the house. He drug her to the bedroom upstairs and tied her up with duct tape around her arms and legs and a rope that went all the way around the mattress over her neck. By this point, William was downstairs and began to scream, and Israel did not like this. He was throwing off his mojo. He went downstairs and began to hit William with a shovel repeatedly, but William was still alive and kept screaming, so he shot him. And this actually only made Israel even more mad because he was actually planning on raping William. So with William now dead, he shifted his focus to Simone. After raping her twice, Israel drugged Simone down to the basement to face her deceased husband. He then put on a pair of leather batting gloves and strangled Simone. He then poured Drano over their bodies and placed them in trash bags, 
He placed the bags on the corner of the basement and covered them with more trash and some wood he found lying around. After this, he drove their car to a Rite Aid, where he had dropped off his own car and headed up to Maine to visit his brothers. And for years, the mysterious disappearance of the couriers was just that, a mystery. There was no evidence of foul play in their car or in their home. People had no idea what had happened. And even after Israel's arrest, their bodies have never been found. Because shortly after the murders, the house that their bodies were in was demolished and the pieces were taken to several different landfills. So right now his MO is the bodies not being found. Yeah, no body, no crime. Yeah. So there were several searches of the landfills, but no results. So I think it's time to talk about the final confirmed crime Israel committed that finally led to his arrest and all of these interviews. And this was probably his most gruesome attack. So this is one where all of his self-imposed rules went out the window, which I guess kind of makes him right because when he stopped following the rules, he got caught. He wasn't on like anyone's radars. No one knew that these crimes were connected in any way. Like the only criminal record he had was the DUI. So right before 8 p.m. on February 1st, 2012, Israel headed towards the Common Grounds coffee stand in his hometown of Anchorage. Apparently, he had scoped out a few coffee stands and shops before selecting this one. The only employee in the store was 18-year-old Samantha Koenig. Israel pulled up to the window with a gun in hand and told Samantha he was robbing the place. He instructed her to turn off the lights before jumping through the window, shoving napkins in her mouth, and tying her wrists together with zip ties. Israel demanded for Samantha's car keys and for her to tell him where her car was. Samantha explained that she didn't have her car with her and her boyfriend had dropped her off at work, and most importantly, he would be returning soon to pick her back up. Israel didn't care, though. He forced her to walk back to his truck, which he had parked nearby. Israel had prepared his truck just for this moment. He removed the toolbox in the bed and removed all of his company's logos and the license plate. At one point, Samantha had slipped away, began to run, before Israel tackled her and told her that his gun had a silencer and no one would hear if he shot her. He explained that he was just going to take her for ransom, not kill her. Samantha begged and pleaded, saying her family didn't have the money for a ransom. Of course, Israel said they could just ask the public. So inside his truck, Israel realized that Samantha didn't have her cell phone with her, which would be necessary to carry out his ransom plan. He then drove back to the coffee stand and grabbed the phone. He texted Samantha's boyfriend and the owner of the coffee shop pretending to be Samantha. And he had said that she had had a bad day and was just going to be out of the town for the rest of the weekend before taking the battery out of the phone. Israel then asked for Samantha's debit card, which she said was in the truck she shared with her boyfriend that was parked at her house. This is the crazy part. So he drove Samantha back to his house, tied her up in the shed in the backyard. He turned on loud music so no one would hear her, not even his girlfriend and his daughter who were in the house. And then he also told Samantha that he had a police scanner so he would know if she alerted anyone. Then this crazy motherfucker drove to her house and broke into her truck in the driveway to get her debit card. Even more crazy, Samantha's boyfriend actually caught him in the act. What? Stealing the debit card. But just thought he was like a homeless man, like rifling through the truck. So my boyfriend like yelled at him until he left and then went back inside. He didn't call 911? 
No. Would you call 911? Probably. Uh, probably. Oh, maybe I'm the weird one. <laughs> Kylie, was your car broken into in Little Rock? I accidentally left it unlocked and someone did go through it and stole all my quarters. Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that. Whoever yeah, stole that quarters. Yeah. You mean my quarters back? After returning to the shed and raping Samantha, Israel strangled her to death. He then calmly went back into his house and began to pack a bag for himself and for his daughter. But he wasn't running away. He had booked a cruise for the family, and they were flying to New Orleans early the next morning. I'm sorry. What is going on? He booked this, like, weeks in advance. Use that cruise to just, like, escape, you know? That's true. So meanwhile, he's having the time of his life on this cruise, and Samantha was eventually reported missing, and the FBI was brought in to search for her. They recovered the security footage from the coffee shop, which showed a struggle, but no face or car of the perpetrator could be seen. Oh, even when he came back to get her phone? No, you can watch the footage on YouTube, but it's like the cameras are kind of just inside of the coffee stand. You can't really see much of the outside. And he had one like a mask and all black, of course. So Israel returned to Anchorage on February 17th and continued his ransom plan. This is pretty gross, but Samantha's body was in the shed in the backyard the entire two weeks he was on the cruise. And because it was outside in February in Anchorage, it was pretty well preserved. Israel braided her hair, put his girlfriend's makeup on her, and then used fishing line to sew her eyes open. I'm sorry. Then- Why? For ransom. So the ransom could, picture. Oh, to make it look like she was still alive. Yep. Oh. He even held up a copy of a local newspaper, which had the date from like a couple days before. He typed up a ransom letter demanding 30000 be placed into Samantha's account and put the photo and letter into a box. So the picture that we're looking at, she's deceased by this point. Her eyes open. But didn't she die of strangulation? Yes. So wouldn't there be so much bruising? It's hard to tell because it's like a really grainy black and white photo. Like also, that. he used makeup. And the date and everything. Yeah, that's true. You're right. There was makeup and stuff. I mean, am I crazy or does it look like there is something around her neck, like bruising around her neck? It does, but that doesn't mean she's dead. You know, she might yeah. have. So he proceeded to text Samantha's boyfriend from her phone and said that there was a package for him in the park. Police went to the location to find the photo and letter. So everyone still believes Samantha was alive. Little did they know that by this point, Israel had actually dissected her body and dumped it into a frozen lake in Palmer, Alaska, a little east. Samantha's family did end up depositing the money into the account with the help of the community donating. Their plan was to let the perpetrator use the card and track him down that way, and it wouldn't take long. Withdrawals were made with the card starting in Anchorage, then Arizona, New Mexico, and lastly, in Texas. But the security footage from all the ATMs only showed a masked man, no car. Except for one instance, Israel slipped up. In the corner of the security footage, a white Ford Focus was spotted. And with this, police and the FBI issued a bolo for the car. It took some time, but on March 13th, a Texas state trooper spotted the car parked at a motel in Shepard. He waited for a bit for the owner to leave in the car, and he did. 
The trooper followed for a bit, slyly, until the car began speeding, and this was enough to pull him over. In the car, the trooper found the disguise Israel had been wearing in the ATM security footage. He also found Samantha's phone and her debit card, which was in Israel's wallet. There was also a duffel bag full of cash with a dye packet, like from a bank. And finally, it was all over. But it's not. What? <laughs> it was over, but it's not. They thought it was over. Because Israel wasn't in Texas just to evade police and use the card, he still had murder kits. Also, between all of this, he went to one of his sister's weddings in Texas. This is nuts. I mean, don't get me wrong. Everybody's nuts that we probably talk about. But this guy is just like, la la la, normal life. I'm gonna kill somebody. <laughs> la la yeah. la. Gotta catch my cruise. Yeah. I think that's the scariest part. It's like on the outside, he's like a Holy- good dad. Like, yeah. Owns his own business, normal life, and then crazy killer at night. Well, and he obviously likes Ted Bundy, so he's trying to... Yeah. That's true. Copycat. I don't want to say, like, he doesn't not look crazy, but, like, he looks normal. So pretty soon after the ransom letter was sent, 58-year-old James Tidwell Jr. went missing in Enterprise, Texas. He had left his job as an electrician around 5.30 that morning and told his boss he would be back later that afternoon, but he never showed up. It actually took a few days for James to be be reported missing because his wife was actually living with her family for a bit while their house was being remodeled. James' car was found on the side of the road near State Highway 315 with enough gas in the tank to drive the five miles home, and the tires were fine. James was last seen wearing his white construction hat with his long hair poking out from underneath. At the same time, Israel robbed the National Bank of Texas in Azel, three hours east. He was wearing a face mask, a white construction hat, and a long wig. When asked about the wig he wore in his FBI interviews, Israel said it was human hair. The agents asked where he bought it from. To this, Israel responded with, quote, You don't have to buy real hair to get real hair. Okay. That's gnarly. Pretty quickly after being arrested in Texas, he was extradited to Alaska for the kidnapping of Samantha Koenig. He pretty quickly began confessing and providing all the details I've talked about. Israel was appointed a public defender, but in each interview, he declined to have him present. Along with all the details of Samantha's murder, he confessed to the murders of William and Simone Courier, who police had no idea he may be connected to. And those were the only three murders that Israel has ever confessed to. In these interviews, he also reiterated his idolization of Ted Bundy and spoke how much they had in common. His main point was that both him and Bundy kind of possessed their victims' souls after they killed them. This was also around the time of the movie theater shooting in Aurora, Colorado, and he kept asking about the status of the shooter, James Holmes, and how he did it. But most importantly, Israel was most concerned about his identity not being discussed in the media, like the other serial and spree killers. He didn't want his daughter to suffer. Once his name got out and the public began to learn of his crimes, Israel stopped talking to investigators. In a hearing two months after his arrest, Israel attempted to escape, just like Ted Bundy had done. He used some wood shavings from a pencil he had to unlock his handcuffs. Luckily, the U.S. Marshals were on their A-game and were able to tase him before he got out of the courtroom. Israel was then taken to Anchorage Correctional Complex to await his trial for the murder of Samantha Koenig. 
He actually requested the death penalty and said he wanted it to be taken out within a year. But this never happened. On December 2nd, 2012, Israel slit his wrist with a razor blade in his cell and strangled himself with a bedsheet. I'm just sorry. You'd love to throw curveballs. Slit his wrist and strangled himself with a bedsheet. Did he die? Yes. <sighs> Suicide note was found under his body and the FBI initially declined to release it. I don't know what was up with the FBI in 2020. I guess they all knew we were suffering in the pandemic. They decided to release it. Yes. Tell us. So the note had a drawing of a pentagram, of course, and with 11 skulls. Below the skulls was written, quote, we are one. And it was all written in blood. Are we thinking that's his victims? Yes. That's what the FBI believes, too. Because he thought that he got their souls or whatever. I thought we were going to get, like, fun stuff. But, I mean, the 11 skulls was good. We got some doodles. Yeah. Yeah. So, in all, Israel was only ever arrested for one murder and officially connected to only two more. So, the FBI has named him as a suspect of at least 11 in total. We've discussed 15 victims who had either been murdered or are suspected of being murdered. Of course, Israel could be lying about the number of victims, and some of these may not be his doing. But then there's also a good possibility there's some out there that we have no idea about. Do we believe him on the only 11, or...? I kind of do. I kind of do, too. I don't know why he would lie if he's dying. Yeah, I mean, what's the point of that, you know? I guess if you wanted to play games, he would have gone for, like, a higher number. Yeah. Yeah, and he's not the kind of... I feel like he's not the kind of serial killer, like he said, that wants fame and to for everybody to be paying attention, you know? So, like, why this infamous and make keep people guessing? I feel like, I don't know, that doesn't make that much sense, but... I feel like he could have at least, like, put down some names or locations. Yeah, just some little doodles. Especially because he was so talkative, but then notice like he went quiet as soon as they released his name and stuff. I mean, he it sounds like he truly did love his daughter, but also I always say like if you do love people, you don't do shit like this, you know, so it's not. So funeral was held in his hometown of Colville, Washington, and was only attended by his mother and four of his sisters. Less of a funeral and more of a roast. Oh, no. Oh, good. The pastor leading the funeral started it off by saying, quote, he's not in a better place. He's in a place of eternal torment. Oh, end quote. I love it. Well, they got a pastor to do this. Like, I feel like that's like against a lot of stuff. Coming in there, he's like, I'm not going to lie. Me in hell. Yeah. I don't know, maybe you just need some like extra references to make sure you go to the correct place. Yeah. But the pastor continued with, quote, Israel rejected the gospel, and thus the outcome of his life is this tragic story. Oh. That's why he was a bad person. Whose idea was it to even hold this funeral? Probably his mother. Who's who's nut? Yes. So Israel is buried in an undisclosed location in Washington. Couldn't find any updates on Tammy or Kim's girlfriend but I am happy to report that his daughter is in college and is studying to become a marine biologist. I hope she gets to live a normal life. That's so sad. And that was the crazy story of Israel Keys. That was nuts. What a doozy. You told us 15 cases. He said he murdered 11. 
Yes. Those three in Boca, I don't think were him. I agree with you. I agree. There's one that I just have no idea. But, I, oh, you know what it is? I think it's those three in Boca, and I think it's the amputee girl. Mm. Maybe. Yeah, because her mom's boyfriend was a suspect for that one. And no kids, right? That would make a little bit more sense. That's just my two cents. Immediately, I was like, I don't think the Boca girls. Yeah. Okay. And then I, the amputee would make that four, just if I had to choose. Yeah, I agree with you on that. That was a good, that's some gnarly stuff. I will say, I still never knew that story. Now you know. Now I know. This will jump into overtime. I don't have celebrity gossip, but I can talk. Okay, go ahead. We haven't heard you talk in a while. Let's yeah, yeah. I'll just go off. No, I've just got two things to say. They both include my dad. He may or may not listen to this. So I found out today, I was driving with my dad in the car and he was telling me about how he started. He was like, you know, I'm just going to be honest. I never listen to your podcast. And I was like, that's fine. He doesn't like murder stuff. And he, he, I got that from my mom, not my dad. He was like, I decided it was time to listen to your podcast. I was like, oh, okay. He goes, and I started from episode one. And I was like, oh, Shit. No, <laughs> I was like, Scott, I was like, Scott, you did it wrong. Even though I'm a stickler of always start stuff from the first episode with us, maybe skip a few, even though they're good stories. I always tell people, I'm like, we get better as we go. Yeah. Um, he, me, he said he did it religiously. He started from the beginning and he got like into the teens and stuff like that. And he was like, it got a lot better. Like you guys did good. He was like, but one of the things is I had to, at first I didn't like it because I had to remind myself that they're not professionals. My dad's very honest. They're not professionals. And you guys do it more of like a conversation. And I was like, yeah, that's like the whole point. And he goes, you know how like some podcasts are, it's just one person talking and that's it. Mm -hmm. Like like it's a story. And he was like, so I had to figure out like, you know, you guys are doing it as a conversation. And I was like, yeah. And, and he was like, so I took a break for a few weeks and then I went back to it and I liked it more. Cause I thought I sat there and thought like, while I'm listening, okay, these girls are talking to each other. Like they're sitting on a couch. And I was like, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, and then he told me he stopped again and he's oh. not listening to it anymore because he's kind of over all the murder. <laughs> okay. That's well, fair. When, when you binge 15, 20 of them in a That's row. That's what I said. So his thing is he drives to Charlotte to start work. Um, and he would binge them on his drives. So he would get like two episodes done per drive kind of thing sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so he would be like, in a, in one week, he would wa- listen to like five episodes. And I'm like, well, that's yeah. a lot. <laughs> yeah. So Especially for that. someone that doesn't like true crime. He's just yeah. really funny. He said there was one episode and I don't know what it was that like, there was a lot of gore or something or had, I don't. Yeah. And so he was like, he was like, and so after that, I decided I was going to stop listening again. And I was like, it's okay. You know what you try. And so he said he might try again in a few weeks. And I was like, you don't have to. You can just do one a week, Scott. Yeah. Yeah. And then my second thing I wanted to say with my dad is that um, today I was doing something with him and he was like, oh, we were talking about guitars because my dad and I, well, my whole family is very musical, but my dad is a big guitar like player. And he was like, Hey, I got a question for you, Kate. <laughs> where, where did you guys get the music for your podcast? Yeah. And I was like, Oh, Holly's dad like made a little jingle for us. Yeah. He was like, Shamed you didn't ask me. And I was like, Oh, okay. oh we got some. Okay. He's a little offended that we didn't ask him 
to come up with something. And so I told him, I was like, you still can, if you want to, and he goes, you know what, maybe I'll do it anyways. And then he just kind of walked off and I was like, okay, so we might get like new music. Hey, yeah. You know what? We've been needing a jingle for over for the overtime to start, okay, you know, but knowing my dad will come up with a whole song. So we might have like, maybe we'll have a, a song out over my dead pod song. That's well, now so I feel yeah. like, I don't know, inferior. I don't have a dad that plays music like y'all do. I bet that's very creative. Would be like, my dad does have two guitars. I, he does not know how to play them. That's but nice. your dad has come up with a lot of our stuff. Like he came up, I mean, he came up he with the with- overtime and like yeah. he's very he, creative. He came up with over my dead pod. Yeah. 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 That's like, his what? contribution. Yeah. You know and, what would be hilarious? I tell that name to. They're like, that's great. You know? Would it be hilarious if we had our dads do an episode? Oh my gosh. So good. <laughs> Can you imagine? No, that would be a shit show. I mean, even if we don't release it just for us to listen to. Over my dead dad. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so good. That'd I don't know so about good. you guys, but my mom would totally do it. Oh, yeah. your mom would be so into it. She's so she's so into the podcast. Oh, she would take it so seriously Serious. and professionally. I wonder if I could get her to come up with an episode too. Like she could, would do an episode. Yeah. Yeah. You my think- brother's been listening and he's been saying that when it's silent, when he's doing stuff, when it's silent, he feels weird because he listens so much now. Is Seth? Hayden. Okay. <laughs> oh, thanks, Hayden. <laughs> expect that. Shout out. Yeah. Shout out to Hayden and Seth. I see you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Seth has uh, requested some episodes. We'll have to do his sometime. Can you hear my baby crying? No. Mm-mm. My nips are going crazy. Yeah, you have that like mom echolocation. Yeah, I can hear it. So if your baby's okay. crying for a while, you, sometimes you have contractions. I had that the first few weeks. Now I have, I, I will start leakage. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, it's a Gosh, lot. And with that, thanks for tuning in to another episode <laughs> of Over My Dead Pod. <laughs> okay you can't make our listeners one and all have babies okay just, uh, cut that part out oh we will <laughs> I, appreciate that. I gotta go because my baby's crying my boobs are leaking if you want even more information including photos of the case you can check out our blog on overmydeadpod.com be sure to leave us a review wherever you're listening to this and check us out on social media at overmydeadpod and we'll see you next week with another case Bye. Bye. Bye.